The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. Ellie Wharton is on assignment. We've got a great show set up for you today. In our first hour, we're going to be talking to David Stokes from the Great Rivers Habitat Alliance. And we did a kind of a cursory overview last week on levees and levee management and what happened. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, that's posted on SoundCloud and iTunes. David, welcome to Intune. We're glad to have you here this morning. Good morning, Arnold. Thank you for having me on. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and then we'll get into the Great Rivers uh, Habitat Alliance and the efforts that you and the uh, Habitat Alliance are are doing to help preserve wetlands and, and also help mitigate some of the flood issues that are going on and, and maintaining some floodplains. Well, where would you like me to start? A little bit about myself? A little bit about yourself. Happy to. So I've been in, in policy work of various types for a, for a long time now. I first got into government and policy when I worked from 2001 through 2006 for County Councilman Kurt Odenwald, who represented this area mm-hmm. on the St. Louis County Council, and I was his assistant at the, his council office in Clayton for those, for those years. And now he's, now he's a judge. He's, he's moved on from politics to, a, to being a judge. And after 2006, I went to work at the Show Me Institute, mm-hmm. which was is a free market policy think tank here in St. Louis. And I was there for about 10 years doing a lot of policy work. And one of the things I worked on was, uh, was corporate welfare issues and tax subsidy issues. And that's how I became familiar with Great Rivers Habitat Alliance, because we worked on some, some efforts together for tax increment financing reform. So much of floodplain development is taxpayer subsidized, mm-hmm. which is which is bad, right? <laughs> but so that's where I became familiar with the work of Great Rivers Habitat Alliance, and then in in a late 2015, they had an opening for an executive director, so I uh, applied and and got the job and joined them in early 2016, just in just as we were having the major New Year's flood of 2015, 2016, right. and so for the past three years, so three and a half years almost, we, I've been working for Great Rivers Habitat Alliance's mission, which is floodplain and wetlands conservation and opposing so much of the harmful and usually taxpayer subsidized development within the floodplain. That is a direct cause, along with far too many levees on our rivers and climate change, these things are all combining to see the dramatic increase in flood damage that we are all experiencing, well, throughout the country, but that we're experiencing in the St. Louis region. And your eyes aren't deceiving you. Your, your, your senses aren't deceiving you. We're getting more floods than we used to. They're more frequent. They're more severe. They are higher. Uh, and it's doing tremendous devastation. But the fact is, much of this has been caused by our own choices and our own actions, and at Great Rivers Habitat Alliance, we're, we're fighting every day to change that. Yeah, and I, I was going to get into this a little bit later on, but there was a study that you have on your website that I found extremely interesting, and I think our listeners will find interesting also, is that it talks about, and, and we mentioned this last week, there was a study done out of the University of Minnesota. They set up actually a model, and how what happens when a river normally floods, what happens when you put a levee on one side, a levee on both sides, one levee's higher, 
and you can visually see what goes on. And they talk about velocity of water, flow velocity, they talk about the channel width, and channel depth. And I thought this was interesting. I'm just going to read this. This is a quote from the study, The Hydraulic History and Flood Response on the Lower Missouri River. Now, it sounds really uh, intricate, folks, but this is plain language right here. Everybody's going to understand. Rising flood stage trends imply that large floods will occur more frequently than previously estimated, like you said, David. The stage indexing technique updates flood frequencies by incorporating long-term stage trends. And what they've done is, they, for example, at Boonville, the largest flood occurring in the 70-year record was the 1993 flood with a flood stage of 35.16 feet. Without accounting for the long-term shifts, the 93 flood would have would have a recurrence interval of at least 71 years and recur and recurrence times of 105 years are commonly cited. And after indexing, that 93 flood drops to just the fourth largest flood stage, flood by stage, and the adjusted recurrence interval now is 15 to 20 years under present day conditions. So you're saying with the volume of water, with what we've got going on with our climate, with channels not being dug out, with levees being built, these 500, uh, 100 to 500 year floods really are nonsensical. They're, they're, they're not any good. And we're talking more like into a 15 to 20 year flood those, of those proportions. Well that, well, that is precisely what we're seeing. It's always, it's always nice when the, when the scientific predictions line up with, with reality because that study, if you're talking about the University of Mississippi, Minnesota model, I assume that was part of the ProPublica report that Correct. was done and the video that they released, which is terrific and which yes. you can find online easily. But that study, if they're saying that about the Missouri River at Boonville, I'm sure that was published before the 2019 flood. So here we are exactly right. at the interval, largely at what they state, and we're having a flood almost to that level of 1993. And frankly, out a little further northwest, it, it equaled the levels of 1993. In St. Louis, it hasn't quite gotten to that, the 1993 level, but it, basically it has. It's one of the largest floods we've ever experienced. And here it is just 26 years after the largest flood anybody had ever experienced, a flood that people thought we wouldn't experience for another three, 400 years. Well, it's just that's not reality now because the every time you you calculate this, you know, as that study stated, you're calculating these numbers based on those present day conditions. Well, except that everybody around you is adding new levies. Everybody right. around you is approving a shopping center in the floodplain. Right. And climate change is started to really have rear its effects over the past two to three decades. So all those prayers you throw them out the window when the new levy near that development is built that changes your calculations and makes your next flood worse. You know, I... I uh, and it's a never-ending cycle that we're repeating right now in this current flood. So the question I have related to your just last comment, how do we get together as a local area or as a state, or frankly, you know, this is something I mentioned last week, that this is something I would expect governmental institutions the institution of our government now to get together and say, hey, we need to get a handle on this because we're not going to pay out these billions of dollars all the time for people who get flooded or their property values are going to go down. You know, what's the economic, what's the environmental impact on the whole, not region here, but on the entire Midwest? Because this is a problem in Nebraska. It was a problem in Iowa. We've experienced the problem up in northwest Missouri, uh, in the mid-Missouri. Every place you have a city where the levees are built, you have this particular kind of issue. So what what's being done to kind of get a control over this? Because I was reading last week 
that of the 100,000 miles, I think it was 100,000 miles of levees, that very, I think there's more than that, very few are actually owned or controlled by the Army Corps. The rest are private funded, are privately uh, held, they're privately managed, kind of like the Monarch Levy District, kind of like the Maryland Heights Levy District, all those levy districts out there. What can be done to keep those in focus for us? Well, so just one one quick change. Those really aren't, they're not private levies. Those are those are local government levy districts. Okay. Levy districts, I know you're on the school board, right. Arnold. Local levy districts are just like school districts. Okay. They're in fire districts and other special special government entities. Uh, they're just, you elect the members of your levy district. They have areas. They can, they can institute property taxes and levy assessments to fund their levies. So they're independent government entities. That's how they operate in Missouri, at least. Each state operates it a little differently. So, and the state of authority, the state of Missouri, has no authority to go in and tell a levy district what they can and can't do. The federal government and the Corps have some authority if those levies are along major waters of the United States, and the Corps does permit and approve certain things that they do. But even the Corps can't tell them not to do something. The Corps had out in Chesterfield. You know, the Monarch Levy District right. built up their levy and then hand in hand with the city of Chesterfield decided to develop, i.e. pave over the entire floodplain and build one of the world's largest shopping malls. Right. The Corps wasn't in a position to, to tell them they couldn't do that. I mean, the Corps would say once they pr- provided designs that met a certain standard, the Corps had to approve the levy. So it's not really the core's fault for much of this stuff. And and we have, at Great Rivers Habitat Alliance, we have plenty of differences with the Corps of Engineers. I think historically they've been way too focused on levee building on the parts that they do control, like along the Mississippi River. But they're not to blame for Chesterfield. They're not to blame for what Maryland Heights wants to do to completely pave over thousands of acres of floodplain north of Page Avenue and west of 141 and turn that into some version of the next Chesterfield development. Now, before we go down that road, it, doesn't the legislature have any statutes that direct what levy districts can and cannot do? Like in education, there are certain things that we can and cannot do as boards of education. Uh, we, we are bound by s- statutory things and also by regulations and guidelines. Do levy districts have the same kinds of things? They do, but they're, they're not that detailed. As long as a levy district, if a levy district wants to build a levy, and the uh, locally elected members of that board approve it and set the taxes to do it, then there's no real role in the state to tell them they can't. Again, if it's on a major river, the Corps will have some involvement in approving certain things. But, for example, right now in Union, Missouri, along the Borbis River, they're building a new levee. Uh, it's to protect a, a, it's to protect a very popular store there that generates a lot of sales taxes for Union. There's really no... Nobody's really approving this levy other than the city of Union and the Franklin County, the Franklin County Flood Office, the, the flood adjuster within the county, with the flood administrator, excuse me, will have to approve certain base level designs. But other than that, there's very little involvement from anywhere else. The, as long as they don't build it in the flood way and they build the levy in the flood plain, they can pretty much do whatever they want. And the Corps has very little involvement on that as there's no wetlands involved. So they can just go ahead and, and do it. And a few citizens showed up in Union last month. I showed up to oppose it and argue against it. But the city council was, this, as crazy as it sounds, 
Flood policy in the greater St. Louis region is primarily determined by the quest for local sales tax dollars by cities. And I'm not even making that up. As ridiculous as that sounds, that is the dominant factor in how our levees are built and floodplains are developed here and how they're managed. Is no, that you, most cities and counties want sales taxes and they'll do anything to get it. It's no, absurd, but it's reality. That That's an excellent point, and that's an important point for our listeners to get because if you're not getting, if you're not generating the dollars because you're passing out tickets on the highway uh, from our law enforcement officials, or your your uh, community doesn't have enough commercial development, and you have this land out here that's just sitting there that could be a wetland, or it was a place where the river would expand itself when it was flooding. If we can generate some dollars, just like Chesterfield Valley, you know, a bulk of the, just like you said, a bulk of the sales tax money for St. Louis County. County comes from Chesterfield Valley. And, you know, Maryland Heights wants to do that. And you were at a meeting last night where the Maryland Heights group met about that. Talk a little bit about that. Well, they gave, they didn't give really a final exact detail. That all remains to be hashed out. But they, their staff presented to the city council sort of the, the general ideas of, of what they want to do uh, west of 141, mostly west of 141. I guess a part of it is east of 141, south of Riverport and north of the Page Avenue extension. And they we're talking roughly 5,000 acres of land in this general area. And they want to take about about half of it now, the, the only thing, trying to be fair to them, they're at least according to this plan as proposed, they're going to take about half of it and maintain it as either green space or athletic fields or, or parks or flood storage, other things. So they're going to try and keep half of it roughly natural. And athletic fields might not be that natural, but at least at least you flood water can be held on an athletic field. Well, I'll be, I'll so, be cynical about that. that that's to pacify... Uh, people who are opposed to this because, well, look, we have athletic fields, it's green space, you know, we are maintaining this, you know, apart from the big mall we're going to build over here. Oh, exactly. And there's nothing to prevent them 20, 15, 20 years from now from reducing that green space and developing more of it. They could change this at any point in the future. But as the current plan is, uh, so they want to preserve about half that green space, but they want to then fully develop mixed-use logistic parks, Entertainment districts, homes, residential homes and apartments, uh, corporate offices. They want to fully develop the other 2,500 acres of it. They want to put homes in that area? There's absolutely a residential component to this. Seriously. And it's all behind the Howard Bend levy, which is a 500-year certified levy. but, But they get so much internal rainwater... Here, I mean, this area that they want to develop has been underwater three times in the past five years. Three times in the past five years, the area has been almost entirely underwater. But they're going to pass, attempt to pass, I should say, a huge tax increment financing package, which will raise the money to improve the stormwater uh, distribution, to improve the collection and release of, of all that stormwater, of all that rainwater, put it out to the Missouri River, and then allow them to lift up the developable areas higher and build all over it, pave it over and build it over. St. Charles is extremely concerned that when they take all of this water and pump it out into the Missouri, that it's just going to go across the river and flood downtown St. Charles, which it absolutely will do. But nobody, nobody cares what anybody does to somebody else in this constant game of build bigger levees, develop the floodplain, and more. I mean, everybody is doing it. And the city of St. Charles is 
They've got their own plan to build to develop the Bangor Island proposal just south of one just south of the I seventy bridge. So they're going to make a development there, and that will raise the water height on other people. So it's it's just never any. We're in the height of a flood, but we've got a video up at the Great Rivers Habitat Alliance Facebook page and our website where we went out at the height of a flood in St. Peter's. There's clean fill operations. Trucks are still dumping fill, raising land out of the floodplain, surrounded by flood water. It never stops. And, it, and people should be infuriated. People should, this should be, you know, G, Jesus with the money changers. Like this is, you should be angry as a listener out there when the people are doing this and nobody puts a stop to it. It's not, it's a terrible thing. It's very harmful, but it never stops. Yeah, folks, if you haven't seen that video, you can go to uh, grha.org. That's Great Rivers Habitat Alliance, grha.org. And it's right on the, on the front uh, page. And uh, there's David. He's walking around in St. Peter's out there, and they, they're driving along, uh, what's it, 370 out there? Right off of 370, Three, yes. And uh, let's see, what's the, coming out of Cave Springs up there? And just that whole thing, they, they want to raise up out of, the, uh, out of the floodplain. And another group, we mentioned this last week, north of the city where they wanted to build a casino, they're, they've raised that up quietly. They've not really publicized that. They want, and now that's out of the floodplain. But all that water, like you said, and we've been talking about, it has to go somewhere. It goes to a community that can't afford a levy or can't afford to get things together enough to build their own levy. But if everybody built these tall levees around the Missouri and Mississippi, what's that going to do ultimately down the road? Well, rest assured, there are interests. There are powerful interests in the big agriculture, the engineering fields, the legal fields, the law firms that represent a lot of these levy districts. Their interest for whom the solution to all flooding is to build another round of giant larger levies and to build levies for everyone who doesn't have one, to make levies higher for everyone who does. There are people who want that solution. That would be a catastrophe because all that will do is make the next major flood even worse. worse right. This is a never-ending cycle. Back in 1852, an engineer named Charles Ellett did a report to Congress about the flooding in New Orleans. And in his report, which was widely read at the time, ignored eventually, but ignored ultimately, but widely read, he, quote, he said, look, you can build some levees around New Orleans because, you know, it's a heavily populated city. We need to protect the people. But, and to quote him pretty much exactly, you generally speaking, you cannot use levees to address a problem that is primarily caused by levees. I mean, levees make flooding worse. Their very nature makes the next flood worse. So you're in this never-ending cycle of you build a levee to address the current situation, but you're, you building that levee makes the, the flood the next year or two or three years later go faster, rise higher and go faster because the water is more constricted. Yeah. So addressing the d- terrible flooding we've seen this year, so as many in Congress will want to do. There are people in Congress who see the solution to this as passing some multi-billion dollar spending bill next year to build more levees. That will, whatever your flood of 2025 or 2026 will be worse because of this and people will die and homes will be destroyed because we're doing it all wrong and we never stop doing it all wrong. I, I'm not a big one for uh, regulation or over-regulation, but this is an area where I think regulation would be extremely important and extremely valuable. In, Absolutely. In which you could actually organize and have uh, some kind of uh, statutes and regulations to 
not my, my words now, restrict or at least guide and narrow what levy districts can and cannot do, and they have to do it in cooperation. And after the break, we're going to come back after the break, because Jefferson County did something that I thought was very unique and uh, rare in these days, where they decided not to raise a, a levy, if I'm not mistaken, and to shove the water downstream because they didn't want to kick the can down further down the road, downstream. And there was some language that they used, and I may be uh, incorrect on this. I'll, I'll check this over the break. But they didn't want to raise it. There is like a foot that you can't raise uh, a levee, or you, you raise water a foot, then it's going to cause a problem. You can't do that. They, they went to one inch or something like that. Well, I'd be happy after the break to talk about that in detail because the, we, the, we were uh, privileged to be able to help out a little bit on that, in that debate. And I'd be happy to talk about it. It's sort of the ray of sunshine for where we are in this region right now. I, I think so, especially the way we've been getting rain here recently. So we're going to come back after the break. We're going to talk about Great Rivers Habitat Alliance and their, their initiatives, also with uh, saving agricultural heritage, saving wildlife habitats, and saving water storage capacity. So we've uh, got David Stokes into the studio today. We're talking about rivers. We're talking about flooding. We're talking about levees. All those kinds of things related to what we've been enduring over the past several years, especially if you've been around since 1993. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to Intune. This is Arnold Stricker. Ellie Wharton is on assignment. We've been talking to David Stokes from the Great Rivers Habitat Alliance, and the Great Rivers Habitat Alliance addresses issues affecting wetland habitat and promotes sensible use of floodplains in the confluence region of the Mississippi, Missouri, and Illinois rivers. And they have a primary focus of the confluence floodplain in St. Charles County, but have been working uh, on and looking at a lot of different county areas, uh, Maryland Heights, as we mentioned previously, in St. Louis County, also in Jefferson County, which we're going to talk about they talk about the importance of saving floodplains as a natural water storage area instead of converting it into building sites for new larger strip malls and shopping centers. And I know the ground absorbs water better than asphalt and concrete. I don't think anybody would have a, <laughs> a disagreement with that. You'd be amazed, actually. There probably are some, some people who, who, would, who would deny that. But they, they are a charitable 501c3 organization, and if you are interested in them, you can go to their website or Facebook page. They have a Facebook page, but their website's grha.org. And we were talking about Jefferson County, and David, you had worked with the Jefferson County group down there. Talk a little bit about that work as they have decided to not divert water downstream, but they've changed some of their what I would call regulations. They did. They tightened their floodplain development regulations, and they deserve a great commendation for this. The, the county council who, who pushed this through and the county executive for signing it and supporting it. So what they did here, under the current law, and I'll put this in as much in as simple English as I can, if you build in the... Missouri, as I said, has no real regulation. All we have in Missouri is that if you're a city or county that agrees to participate in the National Flood Insurance Program, you accept certain federal minimum development rules as a condition of participating in that. And most cities and counties participate in it. That's the only way you can be in the flood insurance program. And then the state rule just minimizes the federal minimum rules. And those rules are that if you're going to build in the flood way, which is defined as the, when the flood, the 100-year flood, the 50-year flood, whatever they call it, 
when that comes where the main bulk of the flood flow goes. If you're going to build in the floodway, which you should never do, let me say, you should never do that. But if for whatever reason you're going to, you're not allowed to raise the water height at all. You have to prove through your engineering that you're not raising the water height on anyone in your region. However, if you're going to build in the floodplain, which is defined as not the main flow of the river, but the, where the water spreads out to on either side and just sort of sits on, on the sides, you're, perfect, you're allowed, it's perfectly legal, to raise the water height in that region, in that area, up to one foot. That's the federal minimum. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the federal maximum. You can raise that water. one. So it is perfectly allowable for somebody to come in, build in the floodplain, and raise the water height in that area on their neighbors by 11 and a half inches. Wow. Perfectly legal. That's why, that's one of the prime reasons why every time FEMA redraws the flood maps in this in America, as they just finished doing in the greater St. Louis region, that the water height gets higher. And people who didn't used to be in the required to buy flood insurance now are because other people have built in the floodplain. So... Jefferson, it's, that's the federal maximum, one foot. But it's also perfectly permissible under federal law to lower that. The federal government has no problem imposing a tighter standard on developing in the floodplain. And many states have done that, including Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois. But no, Missouri has not. And Jefferson County, after all the flooding they've experienced along the Merrimack and Mississippi in the past few years, a few county council people in Jefferson County, Councilmember Renee Reuter of the northern Jefferson County area took the lead, but was certainly not the only one. They got really serious about what can we do to address flooding issues in our county. And they took it very seriously. And this is why they deserve so much credit. And they did a lot of research and talked to a lot of scientists, talked to a lot of activist groups, talked to a lot of residents. And they've realized that at the local level, the best thing you can do, because there are the federal government needs to tighten up certain things, the state can do more, but at the local level, one thing you can do is tighten that floodplain development rule, and that's what they did. So now if you're going to build in the floodplain in the unincorporated parts of Jefferson County, you can still do it, but you have to demonstrate that you're not raising the water height on your the people around you by more than one inch as opposed to one foot. And that's a very important change. It sounds perhaps minutiae, it sounds arcane, but it's actually really important. And I think that in coming years, this change is going to make flood safety, flood security better for the people of Jefferson County because it will limit the ability to just go in and build in that county's floodplain and move the water onto people upstream, downstream, or across. And I also hope that it, it serves as the catalyst for other local governments to say, well, I guess, I guess we can do that. If, Jeff if Jefferson County can do this, uh, maybe we should follow their lead. And I would love to see St. Louis City and St. Louis County and then municipalities like Chesterfield and Maryland Heights and St. Peter's follow that lead and pass a similar ordinance. That, at the local level, that is the most important thing we can do to stop that's the most important regulatory change we can make locally to improve the situation. So let me ask you a hypothetical question, that if the St. Louis County Council passed something like that, would that restrict the development that we talked about about Maryland Heights? No. It would only address planning and zoning it, it, when done at the county 
level only affects the unincorporated parts of those counties. Okay. So now the unincorporated part of St. Louis County is very large. I mean, people don't realize that over 300,000 people live in unincorporated St. Louis County. And along the Mississippi and South County and Northeast County and along parts of the Missouri in far North County that are unincorporated and unincorporated parts along the Merrimack, this would be a good change. But it would not address Chesterfield, Maryland Heights, Hazelwood, Bridgeton, where they're continually doing, uh, they never stop. They're just continually approving floodplain developments and projects. I've joked in the past, but it's it's one of these days it's going to come true, that one day I'm going to go to a city council meeting during a major flood, and the city council is going to make its quorum by hooking their lifeboats together. And then after they've hooked all their lifeboats together and made a quorum, they're going to approve a floodplain development ordinance for that, for that city. So, and it's in this situation, where in the height of a major flood, you're seeing uh, Maryland Heights, Bridgeton, Hazelwood, uh, other cities moving forward with floodplain development proposals and never, never having the awareness to step back and say, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe this is a bad thing. I mean, that's the level of absurdity we're getting to. And, and uh, it just, Jefferson County is the ray of sunshine, the hope that others will follow. And I think there's a chance in St. Louis City, in St. Louis County, that in St. Charles, that some people will, will follow this up. And if enough people do it, maybe that'll finally bring the pressure on the Maryland Heights and St. Peter's and, and Chesterfields of the world to fix, the way, fix what they're doing. It just, it just seems absurd that in light of the flooding that's continually going on and still going on, because I was reading in, in the news this morning that more rain is, has happened in uh, mid-Missouri, and that's causing, there was a breach in a levee up in Jefferson City that the water had, it hadn't approached the capital, but it had flooded the, uh, some, some of the area in, in Jefferson City downtown. The airport's been closed for four weeks now because that's in, in the floodplain. Right. right. The, air, the Jefferson City Airport is actually, if, for your listeners, is actually north of the Missouri River. It's actually on the, the other side of the river from the capital. And absolutely, it is just total floodplain. And, and small airports are a perfectly good use of, of floodplain. Right. We don't want our major airports like Lambert subject to flooding, but small ones like that, that's, you know, but don't build around it like they're doing to the Creve Core Airport, where Maryland Heights is going to develop all around it and continually make the flooding worse for the Creve Core Airport. And in St. Charles County, they had a an airport development that was going to make the uh, there's a little s- strip up in kind of north of St. Charles City. They were going to make that into a, a small jet airport, and that got the kibosh put on that too because of floodwaters. That was a while ago, and that was Smart Field out in unincorporated St. Charles County, sort of north of the city. Uh, and Great Rivers Habitat Alliance was definitely involved in that. That was before I came on, but definitely involved in in reaching out to people in county government and citizens and saying, "Why are you here's an airport? It's nice. It it does its job, but you do not need to be expanding this and paving over more and more and developing around it. That would be that would be a bad a bad thing to put more jets, more planes right in the heart of the migratory flyway as, as well, because this, the Mississippi river down here is, is the nation's leading the nation's main route for migratory birds on North America. And putting more and more planes up in that is probably not a good idea either. And and that's a, a great transition to 
what I'd like to talk about now, because we've been talking about floodplain management, we've been talking about levees, but you all are involved in saving habitats for wildlife, just like you described. Talk a little bit about the things that the the Alliance does as it relates to that. Well, we like to promote conservation easement usage for for landowners out in St. Charles, Lincoln County, Pike County, uh, and St. Louis. They can work anywhere. And what a conservation easement is, is it's an incentive for somebody to protect their land from development. And it gives people a financial incentive to, to do that. Because incentives, I used to work in an economic think tank. Like incentives are important. Incentives right. are how you get, you don't, man, there's a role for regulation. I'm on this show encouraging certain regulations, and I totally support that. But there's also a role for incentives to, to encourage people to do the right thing. And, and to use financial resources, either public, charitable, or taxes at times. And in a conservation easement, what that is, is, and I'll just put out some random numbers here to give you, but if you own a farm out in, in St. Charles, Lincoln County, or, or wherever, and that farm has a land worth, worth of a million dollars, and you're considering, you want to make as much money out of your farm as you can. And, and But you also want to preserve it. You don't want to pave it over, but you know you might be getting offers to develop it. In a conservation easement, you would voluntarily put, put an easement on that land so that it can never be developed. So that you can, it has to be maintained for farming, for recreational uses, for sporting uses. You can live at your house on it, but you can't ever develop it for commercial or additional residential use. All the, let's say you've got 100 acres worth a million dollars. But... After you put that easement on it, you know, your land is not worth as much because you can never develop it. You can still farm it for profit, but in theory, if you put an easement on it and it's worth now a half a million dollars on the open market with a conservation easement program, that half a million dollar reduction, you can take that as a, as a tax income tax deduction. So that way there's a financial incentive for you to do the right thing and conserve your property for habitat, for agriculture, for floodplain storage for for just flood water storage for when the water comes up and there are farms in St. Charles and Lincoln County and Pike County which a few decades ago got flooded got flooded once a decade or so and are now getting flooded almost every year because it's getting so much worse but we like to promote conservation easements as a great way for people to to give people the financial incentive to do the right thing and to do things that will benefit everybody if you conserve that land to store flood water, you're helping your neighbors. You're helping this this community by making sure that water goes where it's supposed to go and not levying it off, paving it over, right. and moving on it to somewhere who to somewhere else that it didn't used to go to somebody who doesn't expect it, to somebody who's not prepared for it. Now, are those perpetual easements, or let's say the landowners pass away, can their children say, oh, well, hey, you know, I want to get some money? The, and change the, that. The, the conservation easements we promote are perpetual. Okay. Absolutely. There are other government programs you can enroll in certain through the Department of Agriculture, certain conservation programs which are temporary okay. that farmers can do. But what we promote is perpetual conservation easements. And we work with our friends at Ducks Unlimited, which has the Wetlands America Trust, which holds the conservation easement. There are other. There's the hmm. Ozark Land Trust in the region. There's the federal government will hold an easement. And what the easement holder does is every year they send somebody out to your land to make sure that you have not developed it. 
because these have to be enforced perpetually. So every year, you know, once you have this easement, somebody has a right to, to go out to your land and inspect it and just make sure that you've adhered to the, the rules that you agreed to with the easement. So you guys, you know, that makes perfect sense to me perfect economic sense and actually uh, ecological sense because you're you're protecting habitats you're providing water storage you're you know minimizing the development that's going on uh, and i notice you can still make money off your land absolutely you can still farm it you can still rent it out for for hunting or fishing you can still you can still do th- do things with your property you just can't commercially residentially develop it and pave it over and how much of those uh, easements that you talked about end up restoring habitats that have been going that have been just being destroyed. Oh, many, many of them, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the easements we work at and promote, and we've along with Ducks Unlimited, who holds most of the easements. I mean, there are tens of thousands of acres out in St. Charles and Lincoln County, which are now perpetually protected by conservation easement. The National Resource Conservation Service through the federal government. They hold easements as well. And as I said, there are tens of thousands of acres out there protected by this. But we need, we need more. And it is just a wonderful way to get a financial incentive to do the right thing. So what can people do, David, individually? People might be going, well, you know, I live in the middle of the suburbs here. It doesn't really impact me. But it does financially in a lot of different ways that if the government has to pay out on Flood insurance, you know, they're, they're paying for that. What are some ways the individual and, I guess, corporately as, as communities can, what can they do to minimize what we've been talking about today? Well, if you're living in a suburb, in a developed area like St. Louis County, you can support and vote and elect people to your city councils that don't want to develop the floodplain any further. You can elect people to office who want to preserve our floodplain and our wetlands and our habitat for their natural uses. And that can be done even in small suburbs here. Brentwood has a program. It's called Brentwood Brentwood Bound going forward where they're going to alter how they preserve their floodplains in a good way. And they're, as, uh, the program has not been, as I understand it, 100% finalized yet or passed. But the, the, the prior mayor who just left office a few months ago, but he and I had sat down and he explained to me uh, in a series of letters and conversations, that Brentwood is no longer going to allow its floodplain as it is to be developed. What they've done in the past, they've done in the past, and in certain areas, they're going to use buyout money for the parts in Brentwood along their big creeks that do get flooded. And right. there's absolutely major flooding in Brentwood at times. Right. They're going to use buyout money when, when they can to convert some of those flooded areas back to natural areas, back to some parks, back to open space. But also going forward, they're not going to approve any more floodplain development permits within Brentwood. So that's one great example. Jefferson County, which we've talked about, is a huge example. So you at the local level can elect people to office who want to preserve the floodplain, and that's very, very important. You can also, you can also support people at a national office who don't see the solution to every flood as and more spending on levies. It's too easy for politicians to do that. It's too easy for politicians to think, well, I'm up, I'm up for election in a couple of years. I'll spend this money to build this levy to protect this area now. And 
Who, 10 years from now, this levy will make the next flood worse, but you know, I might be out of office or who's going to remember. I mean, politicians have such a short-term incentive and the harm that these too many levies do, too much floodplain development does is so long-term that it, sometimes there's a, there's a miss there, unfortunately. Speak, speak about uh, politicians. What did the state Senate in Missouri do here recently? Well, we were strongly supportive of a bill and it was introduced by Senator Andrew Koenig, who I think represents part of the 63119 area. I know he used to, but after redistricting, he might have moved a little further west. But nevertheless, he introduced a bill to eliminate the use of tax increment financing, or TIF within the floodplains in Missouri. Right now, that law applies in St. Charles County only. And it's a wonderful thing that applies in St. Charles County that you can't do tax increment financing in the floodplain. But I'd like to see it expanded far beyond that. All of these floodplain developments in Chesterfield, Maryland Heights, St. Peter's, the St. Peter's TIF in the floodplain predated this law. It started before the law. They're all are tax subsidized. All these floodplain developments that we see are subsidized throughout the process. They're subsidized on the front end through tax increment financing, community improvement districts, transportation development districts, all sorts of nifty-sounding tax subsidies, and which are just corporate welfare. Let's call it what it is. Right. They're subsidized in the middle by the fact that the National Flood Insurance Program is not, as it was originally intended to be, uh, just something that pays for itself each year. The flood insurance rates are subsidized by general taxpayers because they're very expensive, and people in Congress don't like hearing from their constituents that flood insurance rates are too high. So they're subsidized. And I, I don't want to sound unsympathetic on that note because there are plenty of people out there who built or bought outside of the floodplain and due to actions of others right. are now in the floodplain right. required to buy flood insurance. So I don't want to sound cavalier on that. For people who build in the floodplain, uh, it's infuriating that their insurance rates are subsidized. But for others, I get it. So you subsidize on the front end, you subsidize it in the middle, and then inevitably when the disaster that we're seeing throughout the Midwest now comes, we have to send in the emergency personnel and the disaster aid and taxpayers get on the hook for it as well. One of the things about this when I talk to groups, when I go on shows, is there's so many reasons to support changing how we do flood and river management. You can look at it from an environmental perspective. You can look at it from the perspective of fiscal discipline and fiscal conservatism. You can look at it from the perspective of just preserving our heritage, preserving right. the natural spaces and the agriculture that help make this country great. However you want to look at it, it's it's accurate, and we need to radically change what we're doing, limit floodplain development, incentivize conservation easements, and change the way we manage our rivers to allow rivers to connect with their natural floodplain and not solve every problem with a new giant levee. Well, there you go, folks. I don't think he's very passionate about this at all. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on today. This has been something that you just watch and you see occurring on the news whenever we have a lot of rain. You know, we talked off air about Valley Park and Eureka and Valley Park building their levee and Eureka having these floods now that, man, we never had this flood before when it, all this deluge comes down. And you wonder, like, what is, what's really boiling about this? What, what are all the ingredients that's making this outcome happen uh, when we have 
these kinds of situations. You know, we can blame it on the climate. We can blame it on a lot of rain. We can, you know, blame it on levees. But I think it's kind of a a nexus point of all these things coming together. In the worst case scenario, we have high levees, we have in the water being shoved down, we have the rivers going faster, now we have a lot of water coming down, we have releases going on up in the upper Miss Missouri and upper Mississippi, more mostly the upper Missouri, and it just kind of comes down and it's all going to go downstream and impact people downstream. And, and, and upstream. I mean, it, when you build a levee, that can also back up the water worse upstream for people. So, Interesting. So, and then it can have sort of a effect to shoot it through that levee and get people downstream as well or move it across. If you develop in the floodplain, not really a If you develop it, that's going to move the water off across the river if you fill your land out. That's what's happened with the lighthouse development, filling it up. That's the one we touched on in North St. Louis City by the 270 Bridge. It affects everybody. And it is absolutely, it is levees, it is floodplain development, and it is climate change. We didn't talk about climate change much here, but the increase from precipitation from climate change is a real part of the problem. Well, folks, you can get more information on the Great Rivers Habitat Alliance by going to grha.org, grha.org, and check out that video that's on the front. It's not very long. It's about three minutes, but it gives you a great understanding of the 2019 St. Louis region flooding and the impact going on in St. Peter's right now when they're trying to raise that land out of the floodplain. David Stokes, thank you very much for coming on the air today. We appreciate it very much. Arnold, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Look forward to coming back in the in the future. And also check, if your listeners could check out our Facebook page, Great Rivers Habitat Alliance, and follow me on Twitter at David C. Stokes. Thank you. There you go, folks, and we're going to stay tuned to this Maryland Heights situation and keep you updated on that, and also keep you updated next term when the legislature meets, because the Senate did pass that TIF. It kind of got stalled out in the House, and they're going to be working on that again next year in the next legislative session, so we will keep you all informed about that. That's information that you need to know and need to be aware of. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri.